Delighted to be here. Aren't we grateful to be together uh, in Jesus' name and, and the fellowship of the Spirit? We are uh, in this series, um, five Sundays in the month of October, thinking about the practice that is, is really at the center of the heart of uh, the people of God, old and new and into God's future. The practice of hospitality, we're calling this series Radical Hospitality to push our thinking beyond what we typically associate with the word hospitality, radical hospitality. Hearing these stories from Scripture that draw us deeper uh, into um, not only our thinking about hospitality, but into the practice of it, who we are at the center of our hearts and our lives uh, individually and, and together. And so we continue that journey together today. Um, would you bow uh, for prayer and ask God to bless our time together in God's Word? God, we pray that in the stillness of this moment that you would prepare our hearts, that in small ways that we may not even notice and in large ways that we cannot miss, you will speak by your Word and by your Spirit and so shape our hearts and our lives. You would knit us together in ways that Surprise us and sustain us. Would you bless the reading of your word, these words of Jesus? Would you bless the hearing of these words? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in the name of Jesus, the word become flesh. Amen. Look, it may be lost on us, but for all the reasons, of all the reasons to be here this morning, and whatever you bring here this morning, some of you having navigated through life, you know, navigating uh, over all of those obstacles and, hur and hurdles of career and family and celebrating triumphs, but also great disappointments arriving closer to the end of your life than the beginning of your life, easing into retirement, others of you on the front end of that journey trying to figure out how to put it all together. Some of you may be in a moment where you're feeling more the struggle than the triumph. Others of you in this moment just feeling delighted by the triumph. Wherever you come from, whatever point we come from in this room this morning, let it not be uh, missed by us that we gather here because we want to be with Jesus. Can we just remind ourselves that it's that simple? We want to be with Jesus, yes? And not just the Jesus uh, that we think of in past tense when we read stories and we hear the words of Jesus, and not just the Jesus that we anticipate in the end when we're finally reunited with him in eternity, but we want to be with Jesus in the here and now. We want to be with Jesus. Choose whatever mantra you like. If you need a bumper sticker for your car, closer walk with the Christ. Deeper devotion to the Deliverer, step-by-step step with the Savior. You come up with your own, but when you boil it all down and we center ourselves for a moment, 
I'm telling you, there's something, whether we know to say it or not, in us that just simply wants to be with Jesus. I believe this to be true. And it may be expressed differently from generation to generation. It likely is expressed differently from, wouldn't you suspect, from generation to generation. In fact, just out of curiosity, I'm going to do a little exercise in church this morning. So I'm going to ask you, those of you who were born in a year up to 1964, any year up to 1964, could you raise your hand? Okay, everybody look around. Up to 1964, this, uh, these are the uh, boomers in our midst. You've heard this terminology, those of you, yeah? If you were born between 1965 and 1980, raise your hand, 65 to 80. Now look around the room. This is me and my wife. We are Generation X. 19, I, I don't know where the labels come from, so they're not mine. I'm not making them up. Not part of my unique contribution to the sermon. If you were born 1981 to 96, raise your hand. 81 to 96. This is Gen Y. Everyone look around. Here's our Gen Y people. Your age is 25 to 40. I'm now, I didn't say ages in the preceding two generations. You're welcome. A little safer territory here with Gen Y. And if there are those in the room born between 97 and 2012, 1997 to 2012, raise your hand up high. Okay, this is Gen Z. And of course, those who were born from 2013 up to the present, we had boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z. Guess what they are? Coming all the way back around the alphabet, Gen A. Gen A. Look, what I can tell you, now that you've observed that, by the way, um, as you looked around the room, what was the largest group? The boomers. Um, And then uh, I noticed from my perspective up here, when you get to Gen X and Gen Y, those are, uh, which would be um, up to age 40. That's a pretty sparse group in the room. Did you notice that? And then we get to Gen Z. These are nine-year-olds to 24-year-olds. So a lot of kids who are still at home, a little more, right? I just want to point that out. What I'm going to tell you, though, is that Gen Z, these are those ages 9 to 24 Mostly those, I would say, 18 to 24, and large swaths of Gen Y, ages 25 to 40, my observation, are captivated and curious by the stories and the person of Jesus, about what they know about Jesus, what Jesus stood for, what Jesus said, but see having that having very little, if anything, to do with what they see or experience in church. That for Gen Y, most of Gen Y, there's a huge disconnect. I've been around them. You can't be a college professor for 20 plus years 
and not spend time around uh, that generation. And I can tell you, it's not that they don't love Jesus. Most of them. But they're not led by their love to Jesus to a connection with what goes on in church. I suspect there's maybe a number of reasons for this, and I don't pretend to have all the answers Frankly, those generations Y and Z are attending at the lowest rates of any generation preceding them, attending church um, at at the lowest rates of any generation um, um, before them. And uh, as I talk with some of you and reflect, um, we're noticing this. This is not surprising news to you. Uh, That the kids we raise in church and that are connected to church, that when they leave Uh, They're going other places or not going at all. I see this and I know this. It's very close to me too. Maybe some of it is that um, what goes on here just doesn't connect. There's some gap in terms of how people interact and connect and the language we use, the the way that we've shaped or carried forward uh, the traditions of our life together in a community of faith. Um, there's all sorts of reasons that maybe it's on that end. Maybe it's also that there's some lack of connection to the things that they gravitate to and they understand to be um, representative of the life of God revealed in the person of Jesus. The things that Jesus cared about and spoke about most do not seem to be the things that the church cares about and speaks about most. It's a disconnect. I don't want you to miss the point, though, because what I, it's not a critique of Generation X and Y. It's actually an appreciation for Generation X and Y, and that I believe that underneath all of that is a deep-seated desire and love and pursuit to understand and to embrace Jesus. We all want to be with Jesus to catch a glimpse in Jesus of what God intended for humanity. The embodiment of unconditional love. I don't care if you are the boominest of the boomers (laughs) or you're the youngest of generation A, there's something in us that desires to be loved and knows that our own selves are fragile And that regardless of what happens to us, whether we bring it on ourselves or not, that there is one who loves us unconditionally. We want to be with Jesus. And the unconditional love of Jesus, to catch a glimpse of that kind of acceptance. I will love you. I will never forsake you. I will run after you. We we desire that, do we not? Uh, of a glimpse in Jesus of justice and mercy, a sense that the world is broken and messed up. And if I were of generation X or Y, I I would choose other words. But it's broken. It's messed up. And we long for God to set the world right. That people by virtue of their birth or their zip code or their experience shouldn't have to suffer. 
God, come set the world right. And Jesus came proclaiming the justice, the reign of God, that God is raising up every low place and bringing down every high place and the valley will be filled and all things will flourish. Jesus, we want to be with Jesus because Jesus comes not only proclaiming that, but embodying that. We want to be with Jesus to catch a glimpse of a passion for the broken places of the world. We want to be with Jesus. Have I said that enough times? And you may express that You may express that in quiet and subdued reverence or with emotion that reaches to the heavens or drives you to your knees. Different expressions. But the longing is the same for us all, for something more, something whole. Look, there may be all sort of reasons that you're here, or you may not even know why. Why am I here? (laughs) But I want you to know that beneath it all and across the span of generations, we all want to be with Jesus. So here is Jesus this morning trying to give us a glimpse of that something more. He's talking to crowds. In Matthew 24 and 25. Crowds who are gathered because they're stirred up by the possibility of who he is. And of what God might finally at last be doing in the Messiah. They're stirred up by that. And he begins to paint pictures with his words. He paints them in the um, language of everyday experience and surroundings, and he paints them in strange images across the heavens in apocalyptic style, straining to give us a glimpse of what this is like, of what is breaking in, what he has seen and known from the foundations of time. That's, that's imminent. It's near, meaning it's pressing in. It's right at hand. The kingdom of heaven is like this kind of stuff. He throws up images and references in chapter 24. The sun darkened and the moon dimmed and the stars falling from the sky. This is cataclysmic, apocalyptic kind of of language, right? And he's drawing from ancient preachers who've gone before him like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel. He's, He's borrowing from them and pulling it forward. He wants them to catch a glimpse of the kingdom, not as some future reference or prediction, but because he believes that if he could capture their imagination about the kingdom of God, if he could capture their imagination and change the world, it would be transformative for them and for generations to come. The kingdom of heaven will be like this, he says, And he tells a story. The kingdom of heaven will be like this, he says. And he paints an image. And then he gets to this place in Matthew 25, read for us this morning. And he's telling them, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will separate the people. In other words, 
the justice of God will come clear at last. We'll see clearly how God is restoring and renewing and redeeming all things. And he will say to these over here, he will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. Stranger. You didn't know me. You'd never seen me. You had every reason to be suspicious of me. You quite likely could judge me and my motives. I was a stranger, he says, and you welcomed me. He said, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they all look around and say, is he talking to us? Uh, I don't recall ever seeing Jesus. This Jesus, I don't, yeah, I miss that. And he looks at them and says, look, whatever you did for one of these, the least of these, you did for me. You did for me. I shared this uh, story earlier in the summer. I'm going to give you the, a really quick version of it because not all of you were here on that Sunday. I can almost guarantee there was someone in here who was not here that Sunday. So you'll get to hear the story. Uh, I took some time back in the 1990s to visit a church I read about in Washington, D.C. called the Church of the Savior. I was curious about the life of this church in Adams Morgan neighborhood. It was one of the most uh, depleted, neglected uh, areas at that point in time. It's not now in Washington, D.C., Adams Morgan. And this little church had planted its life there, and they thought, we're going to try and live out this Jesus stuff for real. And so they had expressions of their church's life uh, around that neighborhood. One of them was called um, Christ House, and Christ House was a, a place where they would receive and care for uh, the chronically sick um, homeless people of their neighborhood, and there were lots of them. And they would get sick because they live out in the street, uh, in the elements, and they would go to the emergency room because that's where they got taken, and they would get some level of care to get them stabilized, and then they would turn them back out, and the cycle would repeat itself over and over again, right? They noticed this, and they knew the words of Jesus, and so they, and so they started a, a, a ministry called Christ House, and that was one of the places I visited when I went to Washington, D.C., Christ House. So I, I walked down Columbia Road uh, in Adams, Morgan, and went to Christ House, and we walked up these stairs and down the hallway to a conference room where a small group of us who were visiting there sat down, and they told us about the ministry of Christ House. You remember the story? Is it sounding familiar to some of you who've heard me tell it before? So we sat, and I listened, and, and then as we got ready to leave, I, we were up on about the second floor. I got up, and, and uh, I was sort of the last one in the group into the room, so I was the first one out. And as I walked down the hallway um, toward the uh, uh, stairwell where you turned to go through the door to go down the stairs, there was a, uh, an older gentleman in a wheelchair sitting there at the doorway waiting for someone uh, to uh, help him. And he was slumped over in his, had his head down. I thought he was sleeping in his wheelchair. And as I approached him, the group of us walking down the hall, and I was about to turn, go past him and turn to go down the stairwell, he looked right up at me as if he would just 
startled, and he looked me directly in the eye, eye to eye, and he pointed at me, and he said, I know you. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I, with, I tried to have a friendly look on my face, and I kind of smiled and thought to myself, I've never seen this guy before. He's never seen me. He does not know me. And so I, I nodded politely and smiled and then went around him down, uh, to go down the stairs. And I could hear behind me that as every person in our group was following me, he was also pointing at them and saying the same, looking right at them and saying, I know you. I know you. I know you. I heard those words echo down the stairwell as I walked out onto the street at Columbia Road, and as I stepped out the door onto the street with all its bright bustling, I remembered these words of Jesus. I tell you, um, I was sick, and you cared for me. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I needed clothes, and you clothed me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. I know you. You tell me, was that, home, was, was that voice, those words, those eyes that peered into mine, was that the homeless man? Yes. The answer is yes. It was the homeless man. Now, let me ask this question. Were those eyes, those words speaking to me in that moment, was that Jesus? Answer that question. My answer to that question is yes. It was both. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me as if to say, if I would have looked close enough, and as I reflect upon it, I think if I could take just a few moments longer to hold that gaze, to look into those eyes, to have this moment that I had once I got out on the street, but to have it face to face in that encounter, what would I have seen? What would I have understood? How would I have experienced the deepest longing of my heart, of your heart? We all just want to be with Jesus. He sort of tells us where to find him. Uh, in one of the um, roles that I've served at ACU as um, dean of the university's honors college, we piloted a, a group, recruited students right out of high school to come to ACU in, you know, honors. So these are really bright kids. They're also very motivated in type A, and that can be problematic. But we thought, what should honors look like? And we invited them to, to come and be a part of a team. We recruited them to be a part of a team, a cohort. There's about a dozen of them in the first cohort. We called it Justice and Urban Studies Team, JUST. 
we invited them to take a journey through their college career in which whether they were studying, you know, the requirements you have, classes you have to take for college, like history and sociology and psychology and those kind of things, everyone, you know, that goes to college has to take these classes. But we said, you're going to take them through the lens of urban poverty in Dallas. And so early on in their first year, we were in this, these courses together but we brought them into the city to have certain immersive experiences and to form relationships. So here they come, wide-eyed freshmen. <laughs> and, and they're a part of this team because they don't want to just, you know, they're not just smart and want to go to school. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They care about this stuff. That's why they want to be on a team like this, justice and mercy and issues like poverty. And so we take them early on in their freshman year, one of their first experiences, and we've shaped for them with our partners there in the city what we call uh, um, a, uh, it's a a poverty simulation. So we put them in small groups and we send them out to try and do things um, that are difficult to do if you don't have much. So there's this group. Got to, got to tell you this story. There's this group, and they go out, and to get where they need to go, they've got to figure out how to catch the bus and get to some place and do all this. So they go out in front of the building where we were, and they go to the bus stop, and they're trying to figure all this out, and they can't figure it out. And they're having to scrape together what little, we gave them a little, a little bit of money, but it's, they've got to use it for all these things. So they've got to figure all this out. And they're standing there, and the buses are coming, and going, they have no idea. And this gentleman walks up to them and says, um, can I help you guys? And they said, yeah, we're trying to do it. And they said, oh, yeah, this is the right stop. You're looking for bus number whatever, whatever the number was. They said, oh, great. They said, well, what are you doing here? They said, well, we're from um, Abilene Christian, and we're here today. We're trying to learn and, you know, uh, about stuff. And he said, oh, wow. He said, you know, can I pray for you? Um, I should tell you that it was clear to them that he was um, like the gentleman I met in the wheelchair, that he lived on the streets, he was homeless, and wandering around downtown Dallas. Can I pray for you? And they all huddled up. They, they came back and told me this story. They all huddled up, and they started to pray. He started to pray over them and for the city. And they heard the bus pulling up. You know, you can hear it coming. And it pulls up, and the door's open, and he's still praying. And they're standing there all huddled up. The guy's got his arms around them, and the bus, they hear the doors close. And the bus pulls off, and they miss the bus for the blessing. They miss the bus for the blessing. When they came back, and they reflect, they're trying to make sense of all of this. They said, you know, we came here and we're a part of all this because there's something in us that led us to believe that we needed to take Jesus to the broken city and to the broken people. And what we found in that moment, what occurred to us is that he was already there blessing us. Whatever you've done for one of the least of these, you've done for me. And so who did they think when he approached them and they looked up and they all looked at him and into his face and into his eyes and then they heard his blessing. Who did they think they were talking to? 
A homeless man in downtown Dallas? Okay, catch on. Yes. Jesus? Yeah, I'm telling you, you ask any one of them, any one of them to this day, about the most formative moments, not just in their college career, but in their life, and they'll tell you this story of meeting Jesus when they thought they had Jesus and they needed to take Jesus to someone else. You see the turn. I'm going to tell you another story. And you guys are going to run me off if I keep preaching these really long sermons. Um, but John, John Spencer told me this story two weeks ago and gave me permission to share it with you. And I thought about having John come up and tell it, but I didn't want to put him on the spot. He might not like that. But, but John told me that he and his wife were um, in their truck, and um, it just had the bench seat across the, the truck. You know, it was not one with the super cab and all the room. And they were driving along uh, from Harper into town to pick up some things, and they saw a couple, a man and a woman, with backpacks walking. Um, and they stopped. And uh, they asked them, what they were doing, and they um, told them where they needed to go. And I think if I remember this right, John, they had a puppy, and they were trying to get to Abilene because he wanted to take the puppy to his son for Christmas. And so John and his wife told them, get in, we'll see, we'll take you down the road. But they didn't have much room, and they piled in there, and they, they went a little ways, and got to know a little bit about them and let them out. And then they went back in the truck. They were headed back in and they said, you know what? We should, we should just go back to the house and get the car and we'll come back and get them and we'll get them further down the road. And so um, they went back and by the way, before they let them out of the car, they, John, you, correct, you nod if I have this right. Before they got out of the car, they stopped and thanked them and said, can we pray for you? Is that right, John? And, and they prayed for them. And it's at this point that John says, I can hardly tell this story, even today, every time I tell it, without tears at this moment. And he said, they prayed over us. And so when we left, we thought, we're going to go back and get the car and come back for them. And he said, we pooled, I had some money in my wallet, she had some money in her purse, and we gave them all of it and, and sent them off. And we went, we're going to go get the car and come back for them. And so we got the car and came back, and we drove as far the direction as they were going as we could, and we couldn't find them. It's if they disappeared. And he said to me, I have no doubt what that was. When John and his wife looked into the face of that wandering couple. Said, come on, get in. Heard their story. Gave them a gift for the journey. Went back to find them again. When he looked into their face, who did he think he saw? And when they stopped and said, can we pray for you? Look, we're the people from the church. We're supposed to be praying over them. Nah. When, when they stopped to pray those words, to speak those words over them, who did they think was speaking to them? It was a 
traveling, hitchhiking, couple. Yes. I'll let you ask John who he thinks it was because what I know and believe is that that moment was an encounter with the living Christ. For those of us who have eyes to see and believe, what do you think is happening in the space between us when you look into another's eyes, especially someone unexpected? What do you think you see? I first came across the painting by German artist Seeger Coder when my major professor in my studies in preaching in, um, at the University of Toronto, Paul Scott Wilson, chose the image for the cover of one of his books. The title of the book is Broken Words. This is the, this is the painting by Seeger Coder. Now, tell me what you notice. I'll help you. You see all these faces peering up. And some peering over their shoulder. So not just peering up at the person at the front of the room, but suspicious, perhaps, of what's going on over in that corner. You see bread broken. You see some heads down, not looking at the person at all. What else do you see? Say, say what? You see this reflection of a face in the cup. Now, my first impulse is to say, that's Jesus, and that's the 12 at the table, and that's Judas over in the corner, and that would be correct. That's where Coder's coming from, right? But the interesting thing, Jesus' reflection in the, in the image of the cup, that it's also, as you and I stand, from our position, it's also our reflection. Is it Jesus? Yes. Is it the image of God in the face of the other, the reflection of Jesus in the face of the other? Yes. And if we look in all other places and faces, or we're so busy and moving so fast, we'll miss the encounter, the moment. My friend and colleague David Ray told me he believes that every person that we meet, whether it's a familiar face or a new one, whether it's a scheduled meeting or an unplanned visit, every person we meet is a divine appointment. A moment to receive Jesus in the face of the other. Maybe hospitality is something like this. And I'll close uh, asking you to watch this video, and then I'll pray.